breaking a leg. Breaking a leg, uh, the podcast about the creative process behind uh, my stand-up show, Break a Leg. Now, all of the episodes recorded so far have been recorded in the build-up to the show, talking through the process of writing down ideas, turning that into some sort of a script or structure, sort of rehearsing, putting together the technical work, designing the poster and so on. This is the first episode of Breaking a Leg, which is being recorded after the performance, because I'm talking to you uh, from the 8th of December, two days after the performance. It's the first chance I've had to sit down and record my thoughts. How did it go? When I started this podcast, I um, I said that you know maybe there would be a twist ending because no obviously I didn't know how well the show was going to turn out and how well it would be received by the audience and uh, obviously I do know now uh, but I'm going to leave you in suspense because first of all I've got some audio which was recorded in the immediate build up to the show itself so this is my thoughts before the show started perhaps half an hour before the curtain went up breaking a leg. I'm in the dressing room. I'm in the dressing room of the Gulbenkian. It is almost exactly seven o'clock, so half an hour till showtime. Noise you might be able to hear in the background is the intercom, the show relay. So there's people in the auditorium there, a bunch of um, student TV makers from KTV, the student TV station, very kindly come and agreed to film the show. Um, the getting was remarkably smooth. The technicians at the Gulbenkian are superb. Uh, Steve and Ellie, um, just you know, we just I got here at five, which allowed plenty of time. And I'm feeling interesting. Thing is, this show is partly about um, trying to live life to the full because. I was in a bad place where I felt that I wasn't fulfilling my dreams. Uh, so, so, so X Factor. But what I mean is, you know, when, when you suddenly, you know, you're approaching a landmark birthday and then you find yourself in a geriatric ward, you, you start reconsidering what you're doing with your life and you start thinking, well, yeah, I know work's important, but, you know, there's all these things that I want to do before I die. And, you know, all those cliches about, you know, you only live once, you only get one chance and all that stuff. Um, and the point is this, today I've been feeling on edge, obviously, all day, and there is a thing before you do a show where you kind of get into this, why the hell am I doing this? I was talking to Ellie, whose stepfather is in, in a cult band, who've been going for 35 years or whatever, and apparently he gets nervous every single show, um, like terribly nervous. But actually, being nervous is fine. Feeling tense is fine. It shows you're alive. That's the point. Um, and actually, I've got water. Water is very good for comedians. Tap water. Well, actually, it's bottled water, but still water. That's the point. I used to drink before gigging, but then when I started driving about 
1994, I think I got my first car. When I started driving, uh, obviously I stopped drinking completely and I actually found it was better. And uh, you don't want to drink fizzy drinks like Coke or lemonade or something because it makes you gaseous. It doesn't actually quench your thirst and keep your mouth moist. But tap water is very calming, or still water. So that's what I'm drinking. And I'm planning to record a little bit of reflection as well after the first half, so we'll see how it's gone. I just can't imagine what the audience's response to this is going to be like. Obviously, I'm hoping for laughter. And I think there will be some. And I'm hoping for a lot, but if there's loads, we could be here all night. Uh, and, and the thing is, I can't imagine, I can imagine with crystal clarity, neither total silence, nor big laughs, nor pathetic laughs. All I've got is the structure of the show in my head, which when I ran it this morning, it could not have gone smoother. Well, there was one bit I forgot to do, but it doesn't matter if I get that, it's not, it's not hugely important. But the fluency, if I can get that tonight, it'll be brilliant. Breaking a leg. And now here are my thoughts um, from the interval. So I performed the first half of the show and in fact I recorded these on my phone because the audio device that I record these podcasts on that I'm talking into right now, that was on stage. I turned it on just before the house opened recording and then it recorded everything from when the house opened until I remembered to turn it off which was probably about half an hour after the thing finished. Uh, I didn't want to go through the thing of turning it off at the interval or anything like that in case I forgot to start it again before the second half. So I recorded it on my phone. The sound quality will therefore differ, but I sat in the dressing room and recorded what was going on in my mind after the first half of the show had been performed. Breaking a leg. Right, okay, so it's the interval in my show Break a Leg. So... Yeah, um, the, I'm recording this on my phone because my digital audio device is capturing the show. It's on stage right now. Um, so how's the first half gone? Generally, really, really well. There were plenty of laughs. There was a tiny bit of applause. Uh, some of the jokes didn't get the laugh that I'd hoped for, but got, yeah, okay. Um, I, I did a little tiny bit of improv, which was good. And um, I'm pretty pleased. I remember after my last show, St Pancreas, I was actually pretty scared in the break because I had, on that occasion, I felt it hadn't gone as well as it could do. And I thought, I knew that all the really heavy stuff was coming in the second half. So uh, I was kind of really trying to keep my mental state together. But, you know, we're nine years on. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of um, much more experienced, actually, bizarrely. Um, because I've done quite a lot of different projects since then and, and I've, I've continued to try and hone my skills at the student comedy night that I do 11 nights a year. So uh, I feel pretty good. I think in the second half, uh, I'm just to think what's coming up, I think that uh, there's going to be some good jokes in there. Uh, so I think we'll get, get more laughs. And I'm really, really looking forward to the encore because that is where I'm going to recreate my act that I used to do when I was in my early 20s. And uh, I think that's going to just be way fun. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty upbeat, really. Um, I, I, I had no notion of how this was going to go tonight. And at the very least, it hasn't been a disaster. Uh, I think people are enjoying it. And 
some of the things, the thing I'm most pleased about actually was the, the thing about constipation because I thought that was really funny but I didn't know whether it, people would enjoy it or find it funny at all and actually that was probably one of my best bits and uh, so yeah it's it's uh, it's going well you can tell I'm excited because I could see on this voice recording app that the volume of my voice fluctuates wildly normally in the moderate range and then I say something excitable and it kind of clips so yeah um, halfway through the show actually slightly more than halfway through the show um, gonna be fun breaking a leg so what are my thoughts now, two days after the show? Very interesting. You know, I've only twice done that. It's quite a weird thing to do. I've twice now worked for months on a, on a show that lasted about an hour and a half in each case. A new stand-up show in which almost all of the material was new. In both cases, I did a little bit of tried and tested material that was pertinent to the show that kind of almost like using yeast to make the bread rise I think I might have said that already in an earlier episode but that's sort of how it works and obviously when you work on material I've talked a bit about this before you know the initial rush is when you get an idea and actually a lot of the ideas for the show I realized this talking to somebody about it the other day a lot of the ideas for the show came when I was swimming started swimming to help with the recovery of my broken femur which um, is what the show's about and swimming is a great time for private thought because you can't really have a conversation with somebody when you're piling up and down the, the, the length of a swimming pool um, so yeah I, I would think to myself and quite often that oasis of calm in my day was a time to, to think of ideas and I would I would count them on my fingers to you know sometimes I have several ideas while I was swimming and I'd kind of think I've got to write those down as soon as I get to a way of writing them down so I would I would count them and I'd go okay I've got four ideas I've got to try and remember four ideas and when I came to write them down I'd have to think okay what was what was the third idea what was the fourth idea but that moment is a, is a great moment when you first think of the idea when you get when you write it down it starts to kill it a bit because you it's like oh well, this idea that was so pure now I've got to sort of put it into words and that's quite difficult I find it actually a bit easier to write in a notebook because you can just scrawl it down and you don't feel like the words have to be perfect. Whereas when you write something in a Word document, you know, you, you, there's an automatic desire to put a bit more finesse in there. When you come to transfer the words from a notebook into a Word document and you try to put it into an overall structure from the show, yeah, the doubts are really creeping in by that point. And by the time you're actually sort of rehearsing it to kind of develop the muscle memory of the words you've got to say and the actions you've got to do, uh, yeah, that's when it starts to really feel bad. I mean, for example, there's a bit in the show that's right near the end where I, I'm talking about a particular kind of advert which is selling you a product by trying to associate it with impossible levels of joy and euphoria. And I've written a list of 10 things that real people do that involve real joy that's attainable uh, as opposed to the impossible visions of joy that you see in adverts, right? I know this sounds terribly pretentious, but it kind of makes sense within the context of the show. Okay, so I'd, I'd written this list. And actually, it was a really exciting thing to write because it took me right back to my stand-up roots. 
I had a routine very early on. I wrote it, if not when I was an undergraduate, shortly after graduation. So I'm talking about nearly 30 years ago. And it was a list of demands. And I did that for probably three or four years. A list of demands. It was just five demands. It was like I was doing my manifesto. And the first one's like really involved. And then the second one is really simple and blunt. And it, the, the laughs come from the kind of contrast. And then there's repetition built into it as well which again, sort of, is, you know, is where some of the laughs come from. It used to be a routine that worked really well. It was only about probably a minute or something, but it worked really well. And, uh, yeah, I, I wrote a list along those lines based on these, these adverts, and it was real joy and euphoria. And although I think it's a much, much better piece of comic writing that I've done now, as a mature per person who's, who's thought a lot more about how stand-up works... And it's a it's a ten part list twice as good, right? But even though um, it, you know, even though it's very different, and I think I think it, it sort of it's much less basic in terms of what what I was what you know the the, the root of the humour that it contains. Quite a lot of the same structures are in there. Like for example, you used, like the, in the original one, the first thing is something like yeah, we want to banish prejudice in all its forms internationally, so we can live in peace and harmony. Slightly longer than that, but you get the idea. The second point in the list, the immediate death of Andrew Lloyd Webber. It's the contrast in the way that first is and is expressed in terms of the sort of highfalutin language and the length of it, and the fact it's quite po-faced and serious about real ideas about how the world could be a better place. And then the second one is like really brutal and and in terms of style, short and blunt and to the point. That used to get a big laugh. But then I would have, you know, another point, and then I would come back to the immediate death of Jeremy Beadle, right? Uh, the late Jeremy Beadle, I should say now, but obviously he was still very much alive and kicking at that point. That was a really interesting one because people would applaud that because he was such an unpopular celebrity with some people. Obviously, he had a big following. Uh, and then I would say, because he used to have this show, he used to do prank shows, if you're too young to remember. Uh, he used to do these prank shows, and one of them was called Watch Out Beadle's About. And I used to say, The immediate death of Jeremy Beadle, Watch Out Beadle's a Bastard. Right, and you know that used to get a good laugh. But the point is, that it was a repeated structure. So this ten-part list that I've I've done for this show, I've just done, has the same device. You know, I, I set up a, a phrase, and then I bring the phrase back in later points in the list, but in a new context where it becomes silly. And again, the, the contrast thing, where you do one point like something involved and delicate, and then something very abrupt and 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 harsh or, you know, abrupt and different in tone. That's what's in the list. And actually, I was really pleased because I totally lost faith in that. And I thought, as I was rehearsing, I thought, how am I going to sell this list? How am I going to make it work? And I thought really carefully about how to perform it. And I performed it exactly as I'd sort of rehearsed it. And that was one of the best, from memory, anyway, I haven't listened back to the recording that I made of the show, but from memory, that was one of the best routines in the show in terms of getting good responses from the audience. Um, another reflection is that I wanted the show to be quite dark in tone. I wanted it to talk about genuine stress and depression because I find that really interesting when you're talking about like bleak things in your life. I think there's something very transformative in a way about taking that unpromising subject matter for comedy and turning it into something that gets a laugh. Obviously you don't know what's going to get a laugh and in fact, there was one bit where I really thought that it would get a good laugh. I, I did a whole thing about somebody I was in the hospital ward with who I described as being a bit ukip -y. 
And I did this whole thing where I'd set up a character of a nurse earlier who was from Pakistan, right? And then basically I, I did an impression of this guy. What the premise was, he, he really wanted to say something racist but could never find the opportunity. So I, I did a kind of instant character moan, you know, the, doing an impression of what this guy, how he would go on about how rubbish modern life is. And then... Uh, the idea is that he's just about to start moaning about immigrants and then this nurse, Farouk, turns up and he goes, oh, hello, Farouk, and he won't say what he was going to say. Now, I thought that was a really funny joke, but although it got a laugh, from, from memory it got a laugh anyway, but it was a quite a small laugh. And in fact, all the stuff about my fellow patients that I thought was going to be funny uh, probably got more moderate or smaller laughs than other bits. But there were a couple of... Of, of bits where like the humour was quite dark and I just didn't know whether people were going to go for it or not and I was really pleased because they were yeah again going from memory you know I think that's the thing as a comedian you 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 definitely start to develop a, a memory of where you've got a laugh you start to be able to sort of think but it's not wholly accurate but you you start to remember where the laughs came not only that but when you've watched other people perform you remember where they got their laughs from it's like a technical ability that you start to develop a memory of where laughs come so that when you when you when you see a comedian another comedian work you know you have a general idea of the the frequency and volume of the laughs and a general sense of how well they've gone down, which is particularly difficult to listen to when it's a comedian you don't like, because it's like every laugh a body blow. I once saw Jim Davison at Margate Winter Gardens, and, oh, it was a gruelling experience. Because he, to be fair, he's a very talented comic, in spite of the fact I find his politics abysmal. Um, And he, you know, worked worked really well with that audience. Anyway, um... So, but but like I say, this laughter memory is not wholly accurate, especially after two days. Um, it it will be interesting to listen back to the actual recording. But the point is, there's a routine uh, where I talk about being severely constipated in hospital and having to go on a commode behind the thin nylon curtain that they pull around your bed, and how how sort of difficult and humiliating that that is. And that is based on a really ac- emotionally accurate memory of what that was like, being in a hospital and going through that. But I thought of a kind of structure. I won't perhaps explain it here because because I'm going to post the entire recording and you'll be able to hear it for yourself. Uh, but the point is that it's a very dark moment and uh, that I was really pleased that the audience went with that. And what was interesting was it's a three, it's a rule of three joke. And I th- the, 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 the normal way you do... Like, I thought that each of them would be quite funny, and the normal way you do it is that you try and make the, 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 the funniest of the three last. But actually, the first of them got such a big laugh that, like, although the other two got a laugh, it didn't do that thing of climaxing, where, because it's like you have a, a big laugh, perhaps a slightly smaller laugh, and then the biggest laugh of all, that could often get you a round of applause. In this case, it was like, big laugh, slightly smaller laugh, pretty much the same size laugh. But the point. But anyway, it worked, and it worked really well, and it was one of the one of the one of the bigger sort of uh, climaxes of the show. Um, so that was really good. Also, there was a bit that came straight after that where I reported back what the nurse said, uh, which was three words. She says three bland words when she comes and sees that I've managed to defecate, 
and I was quite surprised because I didn't think that that would get a laugh. I thought what would come next, what came next was going to get a laugh. I didn't anticipate that getting a laugh. But I think the way I acted her doing the three words kind of captured her attitude. It's almost a Brechtian thing like Gestus where you, it's not, it's not accurate acting, but what it is, is it, it captures a way of talking accurately. It's not psychologically accurate, but it's in terms of social being, it's accurate, right? So, so it's like, you, you know, you can hear somebody talking in that way and you can sort of see something about their attitude that reflects their position in society kind of thing. So, you know, it, if you're a professional who has to deal with intimate bodily functions, right, of your patients, that's something you have to learn to deal with, right? And so I think somehow, I, oh, this sounds so pretentious, but you know what I mean, that captures uh, something about, something accurate about the way nurses talk to patients. I think that's probably why it, it got a laugh, something about along those lines. Plus it's kind of incongruous in context. Um, I was also pleased with, I did this kind of grotesque bit about the actual operation itself, describing what happens in the operation. And there was a gag that I put in there and intellectually, I thought it was a funny idea. Emotionally, I lost all faith in the fact that it was funny and yet it really worked as an idea. And I was really delighted with that. What else is there to report? Well, there was a technical issue. Um, the, 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 the song that I finished with, which is largely a kind of non-comic song. It's like the old tradition of comedians ending with a serious song. I wrote a song called Half Century Man, which is featured, featured in an earlier podcast. Now, what happened there was I finished the solo I was really pleased with myself for playing it all accurately. And I thought, I probably thought to myself, oh, I got that solo right, brilliant. And then I went into the middle eight section, which immediately follows. And because I sort of stopped to think that, it's like I forgot I got the next line the wrong way round. It, it should be my face is creased and my hair is grey. And I started going, my hair is grey. And then I went, I'm not going to be able to rhyme this. So I had to sort of flannel it. And then, <laughs> and then what happened was, I kind of, I think I slightly got away with that. I said the next, sang the next line, and then the next line, and then, and then it, it took me a couple of lines to realise at that very moment that my brain had gone wrong, the mic also cut out. It was a wireless mic. I don't know what went wrong with it. I imagine maybe the battery ran out. So then I, I become aware that my mandolin is drowning out what I'm singing, but I also became aware that actually I seemed anyway to be getting laughs from some of the la lines in that song. Like there's a, there's a bit. The third verse starts, um, how does it start now? Uh, I keep getting older, it's becoming a bore. I'm 17 year old, as, I'm sorry, I keep getting older, it's becoming a bore. I'm 17 years older than Channel 4. And I mean, that's mildly amusing, I suppose, but I think that there was a small laugh at that point, which is quite, I mean, you know, it's quite gratifying when you've got a bit of material you don't even think is funny that, and they can't even hear you properly singing it, but I think that got at least the ghost of a laugh. And then what happened, which was brilliant, was that one of the technicians, Ellie, uh, came out with a with a, a cable mic uh, to replace the one that had cut out, and she sort of brought it over and was sort of standing awkwardly next to me, and, I, and and so I sort of leaned into the mic so that I could be heard for the final chorus, and that got a really big laugh. So that was great. I mean, it's great when you get a technical fault which leads to a laugh you hadn't even anticipated. What else happened that was interesting? Right at the beginning. Uh, there's the intro recording, which I've spoken about in an earlier podcast. 
that intro uh, has some gags in it. I mean, they're pretty kind of mild uh, gags, but what was quite great was that I could hear the audience laughing at that. And it's brilliant when you get a laugh before you even come onto the stage, before you've even uttered a word. I mean, admittedly, I uttered a word into a recorder and that was what was being played back. But it was good that that um, happened. When I went on, I went on, it was a really nice audience. There were about 150 in and it was a ridiculously supportive audience because it was a home crowd. It was, uh, I would say... I'd be surprised if there was anybody there I didn't know in some way, shape, shape or form. Basically, there were colleagues, friends, students, ex-students and friends of those people. Uh, there might have been the odd random who came in, but I, I'm not vain enough to think I have anything like a genuine following. And of course, that, that affects everything in terms of the way that it was received, because, you know... Um, obviously people who know you are going to more likely to laugh kind of thing um but anyway the point is that the, the the how the the bit where i walk on and start i start by saying what happened in the accident where i broke my femur and it, you know I, I practiced that so that i could get it quite tight i mean i i think i was speaking for no more than about two minutes at that point but the point is there's no laughs in that section at all and that was deliberate and it finishes with me saying an accident which would lead me to realise I was no longer young, contemplate my own mortality, and to take me to the very edge of despair. And then the idea was I was going to break back out of that and go, hello, welcome to my comedy show. And, you know, the, the tone of my delivery was going to completely change. But what was interesting was, what happened was, just before that moment, I went, because at that moment I'm on the cusp, right? And, like, one person laughed. And that allowed me to sort of comment on what was happening and say, you know, I'm trying to build the tension here. Uh, and then, you know, when I got to the utter despair, I went, you see, see, you just ruined that. You know, that something along those lines. Uh, but, you know, when you get your first laugh from something you just hadn't anticipated, that's really great. There were other spontaneous laughs in there. Um, for example, the lady who helped me, who called 999 for me when I was lying on the pavement, incapacitated... Uh, who lived in the house just near where I fell. She was there because she's sort of a friend of a friend. And I knew she was going to be there. So I, because uh, I got, got her a comp, obviously, the least I owed her. Anyway, um, I was talking about this other guy who stopped to help. I use help in inverted commas. And I asked her, you know, uh, about if she remembered him. And she said, oh, yeah, I know him. So I was uh, I was anticipating asking her on a scale of one to ten, how useless was he? And uh, the fact that she knew him just, you know, that got an extra laugh. Uh, so that that was really nice. And I, I like those bits because it was because I'd had to kind of practice it a lot. I'd had to rehearse it a lot to get it into my head because I can't, you know, as I've explained before, couldn't do preview shows. Um, the fact that I managed to get bits of spontaneity in there was great because it, it, it re restores the illusion that it's an actual conversation. Um so that was that was really really good um what else should i tell you about um yeah i i thought really carefully about the the house music the music played before uh the show during the interval and at the end and before the show i i but, but I, I used all music out of copyright um 
but that was appropriate because it meant it was all at least 50 years old and I'm 50 so that kind of it fitted with the theme of the show and the, well, the ones played before the show are mostly songs that are kind of like inappropriate right so that they're uh, there's like there's a song there's an old R&B song from the 40s I think it is called Poontang right um, and it's brilliant uh, but the, the, I, I, I like that the contrast between being old and yet like rude in a way that would surprise us today like wow I didn't think they had the word Poontang back there so, um, but what I've done as well, what I've done as well was I've recorded my, my own voice saying things like, oh, just because you've got here, like right at the beginning of the house music, it, say, it says, oh, thanks for coming. And just because you're first in your seats doesn't basically say you're uptight control freaks. It just means you like to get there early. And then, I, and then it was things like, oh, have you heard the lyrics of these songs? They're really rude. Now, I th hoped that that would create a sense of sort of uh, interest in the audience and it might even get some small laughs but actually I don't think people work like that even when there were only a few in they were talking amongst themselves so I'm not sure that was an effective strategy uh, but I did enjoy in the interval music being all kind of old blues and folk songs about legs hips doctors or hospital right uh, and then at the end uh, the, the, the the first song that plays, which is probably the only song they would have heard as they left the theatre, was um, Woody Guthrie's Will You Miss Me When I'm Gone, uh, which is a song about dying. Uh, and tonally, I was so pleased with the way that that came out of the, the end of the show. Finally, uh, the last thing that I probably want to share with you is the encore, right? So I'd made a joke of the fact that I wanted to do an encore um, at the beginning of the show and that joke worked really well as well I mean again I'd lost faith that that was going to be funny but it worked really well so that was good uh, now what I did for the encore was I recreated the act that I did when I first started on the stand-up circuit which is weird because I, I, that was nearly 30 years ago and uh, and obviously I was a young man then and I used to come on stage with just like footless black tights on and nothing on top and you know with rude things scrawled on my chest and that's kind of cute when you're in your early 20s it's weird when you're a bloke in his 50s who's a university lecturer and like grizzled faced and gray haired you know um but I thought that would be quite interesting but it also completely fits with the theme of the show which is about getting older and kind of and I directly referenced as well um the, 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 you know my 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 roots in stand up shortly before the end of the show as part of that list that I mentioned earlier I'd referenced an early gig that I did that made me realize that stand up was something I really wanted to do with my life uh, and you know part of the theme of the show is is just doing things in your life for the hell of it because you think it's a good idea right so I thought this would be a, first of all I thought it'd be funny uh, secondly, I knew the jokes worked because I, they used to work when I did them on the circuit. And thirdly, it fitted with the theme of the show. Uh, and what was one of the nicest, somebody, a colleague, said to me that, that he, he really got the idea without me asking him. He got the idea of why I'd done that. So I think, I think it did work sort of thematically. Anyway, in order to be able to do the end of the show... I needed to change, right? And I knew that they weren't going to cheer for long enough for me to do this quick change into the costume I used to wear or an approximation thereof. So what I did, and again, this was an idea I had some time ago, uh, 
I'd set up earlier in the show a thing about when I was in school and did school plays, and I was in this school play and I had to kiss somebody as part of this school play, and it was a bit of a thing. And I'd done a kind of joke about that in the show, and I'd set up this idea because I showed a photo of that moment or a bit just before that moment. And I'd said, oh, it's a pity they didn't have camcorders back then because I'd love to see the footage of that. Right. But actually, what, of course, I knew was that there was actually a tape recording of the show, you know, a a video recording of the show, and I had it, right? So I'd edited a minute's worth leading up to that moment of the show. So as soon as the laughter started to abate, I, I did the clicker and the embedded video on the PowerPoint starts to play. And of course they realise what it is. And I, I didn't know how people react to that. I knew they'd enjoy it because it's kind of weird seeing a bloke of 50 in his 17-year-old body, you know, awkwardly performing in a school play and snogging somebody. Uh, I knew that that was kind of a funny idea. Um, but I, I really want, I can't wait to listen back to the recording because uh, I, although I was aware that there were laughs, I couldn't really pay it much attention because I'm frantically getting out of my clothes and into the, the clothes I need to wear for the, for the final bit of the act, which worked well. I knew the show was going to be too long. I knew an hour and a half was too long for the show. Uh, and it was because definitely, definitely, definitely I didn't leave them want, wanting more, right? Um, at the end, you know, the laughter didn't run out, but, it, you know, it, it, like I knew and they knew that there was time to end when it ended. There was, there was no question whatsoever of a second encore, which was a good thing because I had nothing to give them. Uh, so overall, how, how successful was it? Uh, I forgot some gags. There were some gags I remembered to put in, which probably wished I hadn't. I, 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 I could really see the value of doing preview shows because if I was going to perform the show again, if ever anybody ever asked me to perform it again, there are certainly bits I'll cut out, bits I'll shorten. Uh, and but having said that, I got a good-sized audience. The audience enjoyed the show throughout. Nothing failed completely. No. I don't think there was a single line that got no response whatsoever. Uh, I was I I I felt really in the zone performing, like I didn't feel out of control at any point. There were, perhaps one or two points. There was a bit. There was one segue that I'd always forget. Uh, in the second half of the show, it was a bit where I talked about the kids teasing me, and it went into going on a weekend to Paris, and I could. You know, there was one moment where I thought, "Oh my God, I, I can't remember where I'm going." But I, but, but I mean, that moment lasted maybe two seconds, uh, and and the bits that I let that I left out really nothing important. They were only like a couple of lines. They may not have got added anything to the show anyway. Uh, I, I was pleased at the fact that I, I th- there was room for me to improvise. I'd be, I was very aware while I was performing the show of wanting to enjoy it. The show is partly about enjoying life for its own sake and sort of being in the moment really uh, because you know when 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 you find yourself divorced from from life being stuck in a hospital ward in pain and depressed it, it just makes you realize the value of living and you you kind of yeah i wanted to do i know it's an unpromising sounding premise for a stand-up show i mean after all it is just about gags and making people laugh but you know i think the best stand-up has um something else going on underneath whether that's sort of Dave Allen or Josie Long or Mark Thomas or 
Dick Gregory or, you know, whoever it is, I think there's something else going on underneath. Even Harry Hill, I think there's something else going on underneath the the nonsense, actually. Uh, And I'm not saying that I am the best stand-up, because I know I'm not. But I aspire to be as good as I'd like to see other people be, if you see what I mean. Uh, so yeah, that that I wanted to be there in the moment while I was performing the show, and I remember sort of thinking, oh, you know, this is going well. But it felt like work. Like there was never a moment where, like, if you if, if I'm comparing the students' work, and the, the stakes are much less high, and I'm, I'm riffing on something and I'm getting big laughs. There's a real sense of satisfaction to be had from that. Um, but when you're working really, really hard to make the show work and it's getting laughs, it's like an equilibrium. You feel the joy, but the joy is counterbalanced by the effort that you're putting into it. Also, it's worth saying that when you first start out, when you have a gig where you kill, where the audience is laughing, 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 it's an amazing high, and that high will follow you around for days. Similarly, when you start out and you have a really crap gig, the depression follows you around for days and the doubt, the self-doubt, oh, maybe I am actually worthless after all. Why do I give myself worth to strangers, right? Um, but um, when you have a lot of experience, the lows are much less low. you just sanguine about it. You just kind of go, well, it failed because of this, this, this and this. Or maybe not failed, but, you know, didn't go as well because of this, this and this. And when it goes well, you kind of go yeah, that went well because I worked at it and I kind of roughly understand. But it, even having said that, the validation of things that you'd lost faith in through the process of putting the show together, actually working, that's brilliant. So overall, I, oh yeah, actually another thing, I've had quite a lot of messages. Uh, people talk to me after the show, you could see by the gleaming in their eye that they weren't just being polite in in being complimentary and i've since had messages from facebook and posts on facebook and emails and even a postcard through my door from a neighbor who came along um saying how much they enjoyed the show and people have said nice things about how it chimed with their experience of hospital or illness or whatever so yeah i okay i'm going to try and sum it up in two words i'm delighted